This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies Top 100 AFI Countdown number 77, All the President's Men, directed by Alan J. Pakula, screenplay by William Goldman, starring Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. This is a pretty uh, prescient movie for our times, Matt, don't you think? I thought for a second that we might be able to avoid drawing comparisons between we don't have to we don't have to talk about <laughs> our current hellscape at all man no, we can just leave that alone i mean we, we we talk about these we wanting these episodes to be evergreen right yeah exactly. um but yes you can't you can't not talk about the nixon era without talking about uh the trump era for a number of reasons but i also think it's very interesting that this is a film where the subject matter was almost ripped from the headlines i mean this film was made in 1976 the book it was based on was written in 1970 it was yeah i think published in 1974 right yeah the 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 things that is dealing with are taking place in 1972 um Mm -hmm. that's pretty impressive like i was thinking a lot about zero dark 30 when i was watching this movie in terms of something being so topical like so close historically that you almost can't even fathom how this was was taking place within the last couple of years. There are not a ton of movies that that do that. You know, I was thinking of like the Social Network. Sure. Um, um, yeah, social yeah, Network. That, I mean, that's they're, ta- they're that's talking about like two thousand four. That movie came out in ten. So you're talking five, maybe five or six years. But yeah, yeah, it's still very much very topical. Yeah, but yeah, there's not a ton of movies that that deal so deftly with very recent history. Yeah, I mean it's it's an important movie, obviously, um, and it's been sort of a, a template kind of movie for for a lot of films that followed it that that wanted to do investigative journalism or just sort of newsroom type stuff. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I, I'm not sure if there are a lot of newsroom things that that came before that this movie drew upon, but it does seem like this is the start of uh, of certain tropes. In, in in newsroom type filmmaking is that fair yeah just off the top of my head i mean spotlight zodiac and the post obviously because the the post technically is a is a prequel to this movie right yes yes <laughs> but especially i mean people talk a lot about spotlight as a matter of fact there's a podcast that i listen to called the next picture show where they take a, they take a contemporary film and then they draw comparisons to a um, to a classical film. So when when Spotlight came around a couple of years ago, they said, oh, "Okay, we're going to pair this with uh, All the President's Men because that makes a lot of sense," and it does. Um, but the movie this film really makes me think so much about is Zodiac. Yeah, because I think that just like 
you know, Fincher has such a specific visual style, and yet all the stuff that takes place in the Chronicle newsroom just looks completely like frame for frame ripped from this movie intentionally obviously right yeah 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 you know like that maybe that movie in tone is not necessarily um drawing from what uh, all the president's men is doing just the the proceduralness of it all sort of like the obsessiveness of it all a lot of the interpersonal stuff feels like it's very much fincher riffing on what alan j pecula was doing here even Spotlight and Zodiac, you know, to to keep going with these examples, um, how they are extremely procedural and, and very sort of nitty gritty ab- about the the case at hand. But even those movies delve into the personal lives of of, of the characters, the newsroom characters, in a way that this movie doesn't, and probably for running time purposes, couldn't really afford to. Just getting into like how how impersonal this movie feels at times that you know with 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 the characters and obviously Hoffman and Redford bring a lot <laughs> of gravitas to their roles and you know we get good characterizations but this movie is pretty striking for how little it delves into any sort of character background or character coloring at all and just really is completely obsessed with with this story and has no room for anything else that's a good point and in that regard it probably is the most similar to spotlight in that way because it's been it's been a few years since i've seen spotlight but the thing i most remember from that movie is that there is nothing they never deal with anybody's personal lives right there's like a li- they, there's a there's little the bit one guy homes. yeah there's a little there's the, bit but it's not much yeah yeah the one guy who the actor's name escapes me and I feel terrible because he's a brilliant actor he's a Broadway guy and he finds out that one of the priests lives around the corner from his house right so he he goes and takes a picture and then puts a thing on the fridge and says do not go near this house but other than that all you really get is you get a scene with them drinking beer at Ruffalo's house at one point I think we get you a little never, of. Uh, Rachel McAdams at home, don't we? Just a tiny Do you? Bit, is I she think? married or anything? Like I can't even. The thing that's the thing is that nothing about that. I don't remember anything about that movie that dealt with their personal lives or their relationships outside of work. Yeah, which which I like. I appreciated the fact that they, that that movie is about is about the grind. Like yeah. it is about the day to day stuff at work, and so is this. You're exactly right. This does, does even less. I mean, I think there's a, a couple of scenes taking place in Hoffman's apartment, but for the most part, for the most part, they're always on the road. Or they're always at work, or they're always in coffee shops or McDonald's or whatever, and and that's it. And this is not a short movie either, you know. No. Like this is a good two hour and eighteen minute idea, right? Yeah, it is. And even sort, there's no even scenes where there's like downtime where they're sort of like, okay, let's forget about the case for a second, drink some whiskey, and talk yeah. about. They're like, there's nothing like that. Even when it's they're true. eating eating burgers, they're talking yes. specifically about the case. It's true. Yeah, it's it is it is all business, and it this is one of the most talkiest films you will ever have the uh, the privilege or the um, or the trial to to sit there I mean depending on what you're into like this movie might be a total slog for you or uh, it might be an absolute pleasure but it just sitting down and watching it again last night for the first time in probably at least a couple of years uh, it, it's one of the most talkiest films that's probably ever been made like that is its stock and trade yeah and let me tell you Matt spoiler alert give me all of this you got I want as much <laughs> you're a fan as much procedural getting the story investigated shit as you can okay. give me I love this goddamn movie um, I've seen Aww. it a bunch of times and okay. I, I just I just love how because it is a pretty bold move to be only about the case and not I mean it's it's pretty anti-hollywood to only give a shit about 
about this case, and and you kind yeah. of very little music, almost no music, and you need to have confidence that the the story itself or the the case or whatever itself is is riveting enough um, to 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 not even care about uh, you know character interactions or, or or how it impacts them interpersonally. So obviously, Watergate is is a scandal big enough and important enough to American history that they can pull this off, and and it makes sense because it is. It is so important and significant and impactful. But yeah, I mean, I think it's probably a more bold choice than most people watching this movie will, will give it, give it credit or even realize to go just so full bore into the procedural stuff. Yeah, and I think it's also a sign of the times. Watching this again last night, I was like, God damn, do I love the fucking 1970s as far as American films go. You know, like the new Hollywood, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, the film, film school generation. Excuse me. I mean, Pacula maybe a little older than some of these guys, but you just look at the the bold moves taking place here and how confident this movie is and the decisions that it makes artistically, and you think even fucking Fincher couldn't get away with that today. You know, like nobody can get away with that today on this scale out of a studio film like this, a two hour and eighteen minute studio film. Which does think you know, like it'll zoom in on Redford's face for a good three or four minutes. Yeah, you know, like, <laughs> or it'll do the split diopter thing where it's like it's 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 showing Redford having a conversation on the phone, but then it's also simultaneously showing you in focus a bunch of people around the office watching, mm-hmm. you know, a political rally or something in the background. Yeah. Like, like it's making it's it's making big moves as as kind of like a staid and procedural and kind of deliberate movie it's also doing some pretty impressive sort of like stylistic jumping jacks Uh, a lot of it has to do with gordon willis who we can talk about in his own cinematography segment but it's a very talky sometimes i guess kind of slow film but also one that's doing some stylistically very very bold things along the way yeah, I mean, and sort of these stylistic things are still all for the like sake of some kind of naturalness, right? And you know, I was I was struck by you know Alan J. Pacula. This is his second entry onto this list. Um, you know, Sophie's, yeah, good point. Sophie's, Sophie's, Sophie's choice, choice, which is filmed pretty darn differently, if I remember correctly. I mean, there's a lot lot more sort of soft lighting and uh, sort of more Hollywoody type things. And this this is just firmly in the Firmly in the 70s, yeah. You know. Yes, this is the, th- I think this is the third film in the unofficial Pacula quote-unquote paranoia trilogy, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's Parallax View, Clute, and All the President's Men. Yeah. Parallax View, I think, is an interesting film, but a little dated and has not aged particularly well. I haven't seen it in many years, but I remember being a little bit bored by it. Clute, I think, is kind of maybe his masterpiece, um, I'd be I'd be interested in like holding that film up next to this one and really comparing the two because to me, Clute is a film I respond to a little bit more than all the President's Men, but certainly like deserves to be in the same conversation and was I think I want to say it's like seventy. This is seventy six, right? Yeah, I want to say Clute's like seventy five ish. Anyway, that's my favorite Pacula movie, um, and it disappoints Mine's me. The that, Devil Zone. <laughs> yes, which I think is. Not his last movie, but I think his last movie of substance, perhaps. Oh, Clute 71. Okay, Clute, Clute is quite a few years earlier. So Clute 71, this is 76. The unofficial trilogy, this is certainly the one that got the most, you know, the most Oscar attention, and it's obviously the one that 
aged the best for most people, like the one that seems to endure a lot of which has to do with the subject matter, I'm sure. But like these are the movies that really kind of like define his his style. And yeah, he never he never managed to keep this going through the 80s. I mean, he still worked. But uh, as, as you said, he he definitely like ended with a whimper with stuff like The Devil's Own. Another striking thing about this movie is for how um, for for how big the sort of stakes are, and how many you know I, I guess reveals there are, and you know how how many crazy things they they uncover. It's never played in any sort of over dramatic manner. Narratively, it, it's all it's all very uh, matter of fact. Other directors at other times were making the same movie. There would be sort of maybe a, a soaring score, and there would be just big aha moments. But this, I, it really just downplays the revelations in a way that's that that plays well into how this movie is filmed and acted and, and written. I almost wish that I would have like had a little notepad with me while I was watching the movie last night and written down the few times when the score came through because it's so rare, it's so scant. I would have liked to have pinpointed exactly when they chose to use music. The only the only one that I can really think of off the top of my head is that incredibly sort of iconic and famous shot in the Library of Congress where the camera pulls up from the card catalog and goes all the way up to the ceiling. There is a very sort of like modest uh, score going on there, but it's just it's like very kind of subtle. And clearly, they're like wanting the visuals to do most of the work. And yeah, I mean, the movie feels very, like you said, deliberate in in its sort of like approach and design elements. I mean, this is one of those movies where it, it feels like there isn't a single hair on anyone's head that is out of place. Like no choices were made on the fly. This doesn't feel like an improvised film. And that would make sense given, you know, Pacula and, and Gordon Willis's and even William Goldman's mm-hmm. approach, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, for a movie that was clearly like kind of like rushed into production because they wanted to stay topical, it still feels like every choice that was made in this thing was very, very considered, thought over and thought over again, and maybe second guessed before it went in front of a camera. Yeah, it's interesting just the, the approach here because they could have gone so many different ways. Which brings me to this question: uh, Who do you like better, as Ben Bradley? Jason Robards or Tom Hanks? <laughs> well, Jason Robards did win an Oscar for this role <laughs> and uh, his second Oscar in a row, if, if memory serves. And uh, Mr. Hanks was not even nominated. I don't know. I, I, I like the post. I, I don't think I liked the post as much as I liked the idea of the post existing. You know, like when they announced the post and when I first started seeing the trailers and like reading up and just sort of like thinking about it as this sort of unofficial prequel to All the President's Men, I was really excited. And I wasn't disappointed by the movie so much as I wanted more from it, yeah. perhaps. And I love Hanks, but sometimes when he's doing the Boston-y thing, you know, like, <laughs> I have to presume that Ben Bradley's from New England, right? And, yeah. you know, Robards doesn't even really try to lean into it. There's nothing cartoony about Robards' approach here, whereas Hanks' feels a little bit forced, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not distracting, but just maybe a little bit, uh, a little too much um, flair. Robards is so fucking phenomenal in this movie. Like a very deserved Oscar win. Like the the quintessential supporting actor Oscar win as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Like, and he doesn't even show up until like 35 minutes into the movie or something, which I love. 
yeah. right? They talk about him so much before, like they they build up the importance of Bradley so much before he finally shows up. The reason I bring it up because I think it's a good thought experiment, which is the movie The Post is is what all the President's Men could have been if Spielberg had made all the President's Men. You know what I'm okay. saying? So, okay. so I, th- I think it just puts into contrast like how this movie. It's not obvious that this movie was like it is you know it didn't have to be this naturalistic and this procedural it could have been overly dramatized and could have been hollywood made but thankfully you know this this writer director cinematographer team and the fact that they're sort of in this era in the 70s uh, allowed them to make this kind of movie this way you know we talk about the degree of difficulty like this movie could have ended up a lot, uh, a lot schmaltzier than, than it did, and thank thank God it didn't. Well, plus I believe I believe that this movie basically ends at like the halfway point of the book, right? Yeah, like I think the book it, goes all the way through to yeah. the impeachment. Yeah, exactly. So, and was that a consolation made because they were trying to? It was the kind of thing where like we need to get this movie out as quickly as possible. We don't have time to adapt the second half of the book. I would love to hear Redford and and um, Pacula, who I don't believe is alive anymore, and William Goldman talk about that. A lot of people have a lot of problems with the way that this movie ends, but enough people respect the way that it ends for it to not only have been nominated for Best Picture, but to end up on a list like this, you know, decades later. How do you feel about the way this movie ends? I think it's I think it's great. I mean, I, I think this movie is very confident in, in the story it wants to tell, um, and like I said, like it doesn't delve into the character backgrounds. It's it's very lean in that way, and because it had a big story to tell and it wanted to tell it correctly, and so so we could follow the seams and and understand exactly you know what led to these revelations and what led to this um, to the stories being being printed. And, you know, if you were to go all the way through to the end, you'd have to excise a bunch of the stuff that makes this movie so so enticing. So I, I, I agree with everything they did. I mean, they could have maybe done a two-parter, maybe done a sort of sequel follow-up, given, like you said, this movie is two hours and 20 minutes. Like, there's, and it's lean. Like, there, there's nothing to, to cut if you were going to make it go further in time, right? So, like, I, I've got no problem with it at all. Um, would I have watched a four-hour version of this movie? Hell yeah, I would have. But <laughs> of course you would have. But, but I, I don't think uh, too many people would have, right? Although I'm sure a lot of people could probably would probably criticize that, like so many of the conversations that take place in this movie could potentially be shaved or you know massaged a little bit. I'm not necessarily, necessarily I'm agreeing. I'm just playing devil's advocate that like. How many sequences this movie involve Woodward and Bernstein sitting in somebody's living room drinking coffee and just digging into these conversations that go on for, you know, 15, 18, 20 minutes at a time? I mean, many many of them are riveting, but I just I can't compare this movie to anything else in terms of a film that just really, really commits to these conversations in living rooms. That are just it's just a it's just a dance, right? Like it's just a chess match between these journalists and these evasive subjects who don't really want to reveal anything they don't have to. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's part of the movie's uh, what's good approach. Yeah, well, it's part of the approach, obviously, but it's what makes this movie so good is that um, it makes you really understand and feel like you 
you know, you're into the eyes of these investigators, of these reporters, because you understand how difficult their task truly is, like how hard they have to work uh, to, to get this information that they need and to get all their sources. Like if you, if you cut any, you know, these scenes in half, it, it wouldn't seem as hard, right? And that's part of the, that's part of the story. That, that, that's, that's part of the procedural nature of this movie. So, you know, I, I, I disagree with that, and I, and I like those slow burn scenes. Yeah, it's really proof positive that we think of journalists as spending all their time hunched over a, um, a typewriter, but so much of their job is really talking people into talking, right? Like yeah. just standing there in the doorway and, be, and just like sort of creeping their way. I mean, a lot of it is kind of invasive and maybe a little bit creepy, just yeah. like trying to talk people into talking about things that they're not necessarily comfortable talking about. Yeah. How much of this movie is Woodward and Bernstein kind of playing good cop, bad cop being like, oh, yeah, we understand you don't want to talk. Yeah, we, we don't want to take too much of your time. Oh, you don't have to invite us in. Oh, well, you could invite us in, but no, you don't have to invite us in. Yeah. Oh, we would love some. Co- no, we don't need some coffee right now. Like they really get into this crazy, beautiful lockstep where they're really, really sort of like playing off one another. And there's this wonderful moment when one of the guys they're interviewing says, I just want you to know that I'm I'm a card-carrying Republican. And then without missing a beat, Redford's like, of course, I am as well. Yeah, me too. And, and, and Bernstein, what, and Bernstein he breaks for one second. He looks at him and he, he's like, he can't believe what he's hearing just for one second before he realizes that like, no, this is this is part of the act. This is part of the job. You got to tell these people what they want to hear a lot of the times. Yeah, I mean... How tenacious these guys are is is just incredible. I mean, I think my favorite scene, or one of my favorite scenes, is is Dustin Hoffman down in Florida. That whole sequence mm-hmm. of him being With Ned Beatty, yeah, Ned Beatty being shot down, shot down, shot down. Finally, like time's coming up, and he just has to <laughs> devise a scheme to get into that room, and and, uh, and and it works. Thank God. I I love how how slow and deliberate this movie is with stuff like that. I I think it's you know. Maybe in individual scenes in a vacuum, it might be like, oh, you could have cut here, cut there. But I think for the overall tone of the film, it's just important to see how tenacious these guys are. I just think it's very indicative of the time period when you could make films like this and you could get away with things like this for the better, for sure. But I think movies like this just don't don't get made anymore. Well, I mean, we talked about Spotlight. I mean, it did get made in one Best Picture, right? Yeah, but that movie. I mean, I think you could hold these those these two movies up together. Obviously, All the President's Men is a better film, and I think it's a more sort of like confident film that's willing to take its time with certain things. Where I bet you look at Spotlight, and there was a lot of fat that was cut out of that movie. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but I, I do think that there is something to be said for allowing these filmmakers you know allowing these directors the ability to um to breathe if they need to allowing them you know the the freedom to be able to to let a scene breathe in ways that i'm sure tom mccarthy was probably not always necessarily allowed he probably was encouraged to get that thing down to an hour and you know 53 minutes or whatever yeah and i think you know what you brought up earlier this closest facsimile is probably zodiac which really yeah. also takes us time, which <laughs> yes. I fucking love. So. Yeah, but that, you know, like this movie needs to take place over the course of a couple of years. Zodiac needs to take place over the course of uh, over a decade. Yeah. But your point is well made. I think Spotlight is a little bit of an anomaly as well. And I think Fincher is a bit, a bit of an anomaly who has managed to find a bit of a niche. Oh, Spotlight's two hours and eight minutes. It's It's actually longer than I remembered. Fincher's managed to work his way into a niche where it seems like he works with the kind of producers who don't give him a hard time because his movies do tend to be a little fat 
Not that I think that that's a bad thing. I like the length of his movies, and I like the fact that he does 99 takes of one shot or whatever. But (laughs) his movies are not, with the exception of Panic Room, his movies are not, not short either. It's pretty rare that these 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 filmmakers, that modern filmmakers, have that kind of freedom. In the seventies, I feel like we gave these guys a little more ability to uh, let their artistic freak flag fly, if you will. I already sort of said my favorite scene. I mean, basically any scene with investigative shit going on—that's kind of a cheat. Um, is good. I mean, the Hal Holbrook deep throat stuff is obviously really fun, <laughs> <laughs> especially his last scene where he finally you know, steps into the light a little bit. Um, Matt, do you have a favorite scene? Yeah, I just was thinking about, this is kind of a cliche, but I was just thinking about the scene where they race across the uh, newsroom when they finally realize they can tell Bradley that uh, they have enough sources and they're good to go. Yeah. You know, like where they find, where that incredible, like, tracking shot follows them across the entire newsroom and they catch him right at the elevator. He's been giving them a hard time with this entire movie, right? Like, he's been, he's been basically shutting them down every time they ask for anything. And they finally are just basically, you know, symbolically dropped at his knee you know to their knees in front of him saying you have to let us run this thing and he finally you know he just very casually throws it away all right we go with it which is maybe the climax of the movie one can make the argument that's the climax of the film is when they finally can go with it i think that's an important point to bring up which is the characterization of ben bradley who is really tough on these guys but when they're not around super supportive of them going out on a limb for them because he believes in, in what they're doing. Um, so it's not like your typical cliche, gruff boss, just, just being shitty and hard on them for the sake of being hard on them. Like he, he wants them to get better and he wants the story to be great, you know, supporting them like a good, like a good boss should. Plus the integrity of the paper is completely on his shoulders, right? Yeah. So like the, the idea that the, the paper would ever go with something that, they could not back up with sources is uh, is beyond the pale to him. And at one point, does at one point does he just blow up? It's like his most emotional scene in the entire film. He's like, "God damn it! Why won't someone? When is someone going to go on the record about this thing?" <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah it's, so, it's fired up. He gets throughout the movie. Sure. Exactly. Yeah, and I I just love I love supporting performances like that, especially when they're when they're honored by the Academy, because I think that that takes a lot of restraint as an actor. And apparently, Ben Bradley was not happy with the casting of Robards in this role, I read. <laughs> That's crazy. And he was not sold. Yeah, because, you know, Robards was not the legend in, you know, 1976 that he is today. So, I mean, I'm sure that Bradley was probably swayed when he saw the film. To, but yeah, this is just this is just one of the all-time great, you know, boss performances, if you will. Because you're right, he is he is hard on them, but always for the best, right? He has the paper's integrity in mind, but he also wants them to become better journalists he wants them to he wants them to work to become their best i love a great hard-ass boss with integrity you know that's another thing in spotlight's favorite leah schreiber is so fucking good in that movie um <laughs> there's a couple there's there's tears because even keat even michael keaton is is his own version of kind of a hard-ass boss to his crew right yeah yeah a little, bit, a little sure. bit of a tiered and then even stanley tucci in his own way is a, yeah <laughs> i gotta revisit that movie there's a lot going on in that movie that's a great i love that, that movie, movie one best picture i think this movie absolutely deserves to be on this list i in fact would probably put it i don't know 20 25 spots higher even Th- this is a movie that i think about a lot but don't revisit very often and i think that's an important distinction um it's a movie that i respect i don't know if it's a movie that i love because it i don't know if it just it just doesn't quite like scratch the entertainment itches that i think need scratched 
Okay. Whereas I think something like Clute is just such a twisty, noirish kind of like pot boiler thrill, sexy pot boiler thriller. Whereas All the Presidents Manage is something that I always kind of like respect from afar. Like, oh yeah, that's an impressive movie. There's a lot going on there. Just don't have the impulse to watch it that often. But when I do, I always get a lot out of it. I will say it absolutely deserves to be on the list. Interestingly enough, it was not on the original list. It was one of the few inclusions this time around. Because people like me got pissed off, probably, yeah. Well, I I know it has a lot of uh, big influential fans. Like we said at the beginning of this conversation, like this, the influence of this movie, like visually, thematically, um, you know, in in terms of like tone and um, kind of pacing, uh, you can see across, you know, all manner of important films and important filmmakers. Even something like Moneyball, I was thinking about when I was watching this movie. Mm-hmm. I was watching, I was thinking to myself, yeah, like Moneyball is a procedural about two guys who are just so committed to this idea and this obsession even that they know is right. And they just will not stop at anything until they prove that uh, that they're on the right track. And that's a movie that's maybe a little more ostentatious than this. But I think that you could draw a lot of parallels, even in terms of how Wally Pfister shoots that movie, um, yeah. compared to how Gordon Willis shoots this. I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but I do think you can't talk about this movie without talking about Gordon Willis, The Prince of Darkness, and how he how he <laughs> shoots this film. And the fact that... So much of the movie is just in complete darkness where, you know, so many of Hal Holbrook's scenes, he's basically just a silhouette. Yeah. You know, like this is one of the biggest movie stars of the 1970s and you can't even see his fucking face for most of the scenes he's in, which I understand is part of the way that that character wanted to have his conversations with uh, Bob Woodward. But but it's it's an incredibly bold and confident thing to do. And uh, yeah, just all of his split diopters and uh, and his contrasts and the shit that he does in the Library of Congress with that incredible uh, shot, you know, directly upwards, which I believe was on. I, th- I think it was just on a like a, a cable. I don't think it was on a crane or anything. I think they just like it have I think to they just attach it to a cable and just yeah, just like cranked it up. And even at the end, you can you can see it swaying ever so slightly back and forth. And I love the fact that they. They left that in. So anyway, Gordon Willis, one of the greatest cinematographers of all time, was Pacula's guy, and he shot this movie. Um, this is the year before he shot Annie Hall. Anyway, yeah, he was he was rocking and rolling in the 1970s. I also think it's one of the best movies ever made about people uh, speaking on the telephone. Yeah. <laughs> and the reason that I bring that up is because I just rewatched Dr. Strangelove at work this week, and I was thinking to myself, that's probably the best talking on a telephone movie ever made. But All the President's Men is probably a pretty good uh, candidate for number two because there's a lot of riveting conversations on telephones in this film. Yeah, a lot of them one-sided, and it's uh, yeah, it, 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 it all works even when maybe it shouldn't. And uh, you know, I think a lot of that's uh, the acting pedigree on display. Yeah, I don't think you can give actors enough credit for being able to convince, convincingly have a conversation on the telephone on camera. A lot of times what filmmakers like to do is they like to actually install a telephone line on set so the actor can actually play off another voice. But that's not necessarily something you always have the capacity to do. So a lot of times these actors are just doing it by themselves on the fly and having to insert just the proper amount of timing by themselves, which is which is impressive. Exactly. Right. So, yeah, I think it deserves to be on the list. I would probably maybe put it a little bit lower just because we've talked about some films that I think deserve to be in the 70s. But it's a movie I really, really respect. Interestingly, it came out in maybe one of the greatest years for movies ever. If you look at the Best Picture nominees from 1976, what are they? What are staggering. They? Network, Rocky, Taxi Driver, all of which 
are on this AFI list and will come up later. Mm-hmm. And then a movie called Bound for Glory, which I'm not as familiar with. But I think it would be interesting to do, and maybe one of these days I'll have some time to be able to audit this, to look at certain years, you know, like years of five Best Picture nominees and how many of those years had four or even five of those nominated films that show up in this AFI list. Yeah, I like that. Because this has got to be one of the strongest ones, right? Four out of the five films nominated for Best Picture this year show up at pretty high, you know, pretty high in this AFI list. Yeah, exactly. So, and I honestly, I think that you could draw a lot of parallels between All the President's Men and Network even. Yeah, for you know, sure. Include, you know, if for no other reason than they both have Ned Beatty in one scene. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's the important right. through line. Um, <laughs> all right, Matt, I think this has been good. Um We'll talk soon. I believe our next AFI Top 100 uh, entry is number 76, Forrest Gump. Another year that also has, I think, three out of four films uh, nominated in 1984 show up on this list. Yeah, which is uh, impressive and probably in the wrong order. Uh, Yes, and uh, I have not, I, I will say that of every film on this list, Forrest Gump is probably one of the ones I revisit the least. Oh, I haven't so, seen Forrest Gump in a decade, I don't think, if, if, yeah. if not longer than that. It might be more like 20 for me. We'll see. And at least it is an entirety, you know, like I probably caught it on cable, you know, a couple scenes or whatever. But I will say Forrest Gump is one of the ones I've been most looking forward to revisiting because I don't have great memories of it. So I'm going to approach it with an open mind and see how I feel. I agree. I agree. I can't wait. So until next time, this has been AFI Top 100 Countdown. Number 77, All the President's Men. Say goodbye, Matt. Goodbye, Matt.